This is the Materials and Megabytes podcast. We have another paper discussion we're really excited about called Learning from Failure, Predicting Electronic Structure Calculation Outcomes with Machine Learning Models, which was published in the Journal of Chemical Theory and Computation in 2019. We had the pleasure of interviewing the PI Heather J. Kolek, who is an associate professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering at MIT. Her research in accelerating computational modeling in inorganic chemistry and catalysis has been widely recognized by many invited papers and awards, most recently by the Journal of Physical Chemistry Lectureship Award. The links to her group, this paper, and related papers are on the episode website. Could you tell us about the motivation for this paper? Uh, so, so my group studies an interesting area of uh, material space, open shell transition metal chemistry. And when we study these transition metal complexes, for various reasons, probably over half of the calculations we ever attempt fail. And if we had patients to, to look and inspect each one of these by hand, uh, Maybe we could spend a significant amount of effort doing that, but in practice, we often are generating this data for machine learning models, and so we wanted uh, good ways to anticipate calculation failure and detect it uh, without involving human effort. Okay, for these DFT calculations, um, how many GPU hours does it usually take for one calculation to converge? Probably uh, some of these calculations could take a really long time in practice, Part of our automation workflow is that we basically uh, um, tolerate calculations that can take around five days on average. And with, with GPU acceleration, that means that most calculations can complete in that time on reasonable sized molecules. The first part of the paper talks about what you call the static model. Could you give us a quick summary of the model, including the data and the features used in the model? Sure. Uh, the our group had spent a fair amount of time uh, building machine learning models. We, we had built the first machine learning models to predict properties of open shell transition metal complexes. And these properties that uh, people are usually interested in these complexes are things like the ground state quantum mechanical spin of a complex, its ionization potential, catalytic properties, and so on. And so we had already had a significant amount of experience um, developing representations as well as training machine learning models for the simple task of predicting these properties. And so um, our group had a history of using what we call revised autocorrelation functions, which are a series of graph-based descriptors. They have close relationship to uh, graph convolutions that are, have been widely used across a series of material spaces. and. Because usually DFT is the absolute minimum theory you can use when you're studying these systems, we didn't want uh, to require precise geometric information before we make a machine learning model prediction, and so that's why we went with graph-based descriptors. Uh, in more specifics, racks are products and differences on the molecular graph of heuristic properties we can look up in a table. In practice, what we use are things like uh, the nuclear charge, the electronegativity, uh, covalent radius topology, and identity. Um, and those descriptors are used to train machine learning models. And in this case, we picked a representative data set 
just for the type of uh, properties we normally predict, which was a what we call the spectrochemical data set. And in this set, uh, we had a wide range of ligand uh, field strengths. Uh, the spectrochem it's so-called the spectrochemical data set because the spectrochemical series ranges from uh, weak field ligands to strong field ligands that have to have very diverse properties. And we were just trying to generate a representative data set of the typical types of complexes studied in, in the group. Uh, we then, once we had the data and the representation, uh, we went ahead and, and looked at using the same type of workflow we would normally use to train property prediction models instead to train classifiers. And uh, support vector machines are among the most widely used models in classification. We used that as sort of our low-level, uh, more transparent model, and then we also looked at to see if we could get performance gain out of a neural network classifier. To get a sense of how difficult this problem is, if you gave chemists the spectrochemical data set, would they do a good job of predicting which simulations will work? Yeah, so, so that's an interesting question. Uh, part of the inspiration for this project actually came from the fact that um, the graduate student who, who is the lead author on this, the first author on this work, um, he came from a physics background. And so when he joined my group and started studying molecules, he was really impressed how many times the calculations failed and that he had no intuition for, for how the calculations failed. There probably are uh, cases in that range where I, as someone trained a little more in transition metal chemistry with a little more experience, probably could have pointed out, oh, this molecule probably won't work and, and this one will. There are some obvious trends in a data set like the one we worked in with, such that such as uh, if there's a very high net negative charge on the complex because of repulsion and, and also some limitations within DFT, that complex is probably going to fall apart. Uh, but beyond those simple estimations, I, I would guess that the baseline accuracy of a chemist is not going to be very high in comparison to where we were aiming to get these models. And a good example of that is that in a lot of cases, uh, in all of our data set, we have uh, two, at least two spin states for each molecule, and as well as two oxidation states. And it would not be uncommon that uh, two of the spin states succeed, but one fails, one oxidation state succeeds, another fails. Um, and these are very nuanced and difficult to work out patterns. So you mentioned that in your featureization of the molecules, you don't consider the geometry. But I would imagine that when you actually do the DFT simulations, the simulation might also depend on how you initialize the geometry of the molecule. Could you comment on that? So that's that's exactly right. Um, and I think that's something that the second, the last part of the paper addresses a little better, that inherently there is some path dependence in this. Uh, what we had working in our favor is that the property prediction models we'd already developed included one to predict the metal ligand bond length. So when complexes are initialized within MolSimplify, uh, what we do is a force field pre-optimization of all the organic bits of the transition metal complex, and organic force fields tend to do pretty well. They generate geometries within around 0.01 angstrom of the DFT-optimized result on average. But the metal ligand bond length is what the force fields tend to get wrong, and we actually use a neural network trained to predict that metal ligand bond length in a spin and oxidation state dependent matter, and it tends to predict that property to within 0.01 angstroms of the DFT result. 
so we're often starting our geometries pretty close to a good uh, initial result. Um, that being said, uh, there's still improvements and, and some subtleties there that, that became the focus of the latter part of our paper. So how well does the static model work, especially in terms of how much it speeds up the simulations? So a couple of interesting things about how, uh, how well uh, the static model works. What, what's nice about it is that because it's based only on chemical composition, um, we can use it to survey a large space and look at what the model thinks are the most promising regions of space. And so we picked an example on a set-aside test set partition that we could have, um, with the best performing model, uh, simulated most of the space, um, or simulated most of the usable space uh, while only carrying out half of the calculations because the model would have told us to not carry out half of the calculations. There we looked at a composite decision of both predicting if spin contamination would occur as well as if the geometry would fall apart. Spin contamination turned out to be slightly easier to, um, to predict than the geometry result in part because of what we just discussed with um, the geometry optimization being path dependent. What was nice about the speed up is that bad calculations take longer to fail than good calculations take to succeed. So in practice, this was a threefold reduction in compute time. Um, but it's also in terms of discovery and, and imagining using this in active learning, when we go and attempt new molecules suggested by, say, uh, some ML model driving our chemical space exploration, we want to only simulate the leads that are, are feasible. And so uh, it's not just about uh, computational acceleration, but it's also about specifically not wasting compute resources on, on, on simulations that give us no new information. But this model required a lot of calculations to make the training data, so can we really call this a speed-up? And on a related note, could you elaborate a little bit more on the generalizability of this model? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. I think one unique uh, feature in my group is that um, over the longer term horizon of the past five years, we actually track the status of all attempted calculations in my group. So we're generating this data of successful and failed calculations all the time. But for the purpose of the paper, we wanted to generate a really controlled set of success and failure. And so if you imagine that you need to do that every time you want to train a classifier model, um, that's going to be a little bit tricky because you really want to know about whether or not this is going to work on new spaces. So we, um, we have in the paper what we call the diverse data set. And actually, in practice, what the diverse data set was, was another graduate student was working on a totally different project. It was a different oxidation state and looking specifically at catalytic properties. And so we just said to that student, can we, can we pull your data and look at when it succeeds and fails. So it was something that we were generating at the same time. And what we saw when we applied the static classifier to that data set was that we didn't do well at all. We were getting down close to uh, random chance accuracy, and we don't want a model making decisions for us if it's not predictive on when calculations will succeed or fail. So one thing we uh, tried to introduce was a measure of how predictive we thought the model could be. Um, and we called that uh, the latent space entropy. 
I really like the latent space entropy because it addresses one of the main difficulties with using machine learning to make predictions, which is that it only generalizes two point samples from the same distribution as the training data. But in real world problems, you don't know the data distribution in advance, and it's often very challenging to find out if your model is applicable to new data or not. Could you give us some intuition on how the latent space entropy works? Yeah, so、uh, my group has been increasingly interested in, in using properties of the latent space in uncertainty quantification. And、uh, the latent space entropy is, is one way of thinking about it that works pretty well for classification models.、Uh, it really contains two types of terms.、Uh, and when the latent space entropy is high, Uh, that suggests that we probably shouldn't trust the ML model prediction. And it can be high either because it's close to the training data, but right near the decision boundary where things go from good to bad.、Um, and so then, then if the model.、Um, If the model, if it's right on the decision boundary, then we know not to trust that the classification is going to be super clear.、Um, and then also, if the training, if the point is really close,、uh, really far from training data, then we also know not to trust it. So, in simple in distribution、uh, tests, things like just using the model probability raw score could help us. Determine model certainty. But once we went to out of distribution, latent space entropy became、um, necessary. It seems like what latent space entropy does is to identify the out of distribution samples that are similar to the training data. But in real high throughput materials discovery, you would want a model that generalizes well to samples that are not similar to the training samples so that you can screen all of chemical composition space. So, do you have any ideas for using the latent space entropy to also help extend the domain of applicability? In more general property prediction,、uh, we developed a related metric we call the latent space distance. In that case, we don't have a term that、uh, focuses on decision boundaries. That was published in a, in a subsequent paper. Um, but instead, we just focus on distance to, to training data. And in those cases, we've actually shown、um, that these types of、uh, metrics can be used in active learning、um, to identify high uncertainty points that can be advantageously added to, to ML models、um, and then use those to retrain models and, and make them. Models that generally generalize well. We've used that in conjunction with、uh, efficient global optimization in a paper that we're finishing up now. So, the second part of the paper uses the intermediate structures from the DFT relaxation trajectory called the dynamic models.、Um, so, how are the features in this model different from the static model? So, we actually throw away all of the racks that we were using in the static model when we generate the dynamic model. And、uh, some, of, some of our motivation here comes from a challenge or an,、uh, an interest that we've had in my group going back, I think, several years, which is what is the maximum amount of information that can be gleaned from the first? Electronic structure evaluation of、uh, geometry optimization.、Um, what can we get from the first gradient evaluation? What, what can we get in those really early stages? And so, because racks are geometry free and we wanted to predict something that depends on and learns from 
the trajectory outcome, it makes sense for us to eliminate these descriptors that would have been constant across the, the optimization process. And so we instead use properties of the electronic structure around the metal, including properties of how well bonded the metal is to the ligands, so things that come directly from the wave function, as well as properties of uh, key components of the gradient around the metal, as well as the structure itself. In this case, you're working with time series data. So which models did you use to encode the temporal information? Yeah, so, so we took a bit of a shortcut here. We looked at a series of architectures and uh, we went with a convolutional neural net um, because it was easier to train than a recurrent neural net that would maybe be a, a more natural uh, fit for this. Given the amount of data we had, um, and the the type of data we had that, that worked for us. And, and one thing to keep in mind is that we trained models on different lengths of time series data, so from around one step of a geometry optimization up to 40 steps of a geometry optimization. In, in practical terms, that's no more than around 12 hours of simulation time out of what I told you in the beginning was around 100 hours that we let the simulation run. Um, and so because the data that the CNN always has is uh, is bounded on one side by the initial step of the geometry optimization. The way that we um, can address, you know, thinking about this this sensitivity to the number of steps is is by interpolating and re-averaging these these trajectories. So, could you give us a short intuition on how the CNNs are applied to the data? Yeah, so so there are about 35 electronic and geometric uh, descriptors handed to the to the convolutional layer. Um, again, this this comes back really to that the the model is reweighting and and focusing much in the way a CNN model does on what are the most important variations in those features. And so I'd say the connection to using CNN for this classification task is maybe more a little bit how a lot of people are inserting convolutional layers into models to um, have those extract feature importance um, rather than doing feature selection. Um, and, and I'd say in the same way the convolutional layer helped us identify from the variation in properties along the optimization which ones uh, are um, most important to explaining the outcome of the simulation. So how well does this dynamic model perform in comparison to the static model? So the, the dynamic model uh, um, performance, it depends on if we're talking about a test partition or the out of distribution uh, diverse data set. Generally on the cases where the static model performed poorly, the dynamic model can perform better, especially when paired with the latent space entropy cutoff. Um, the, the dynamic model can reach a certain level of accuracy we never reached with the static model. We can uh, choose to only make predictions on around half of the points and really get up towards 99% of the accuracy if we're patient enough. But this comes at the cost of needing to at least initialize the calculation and collect the data about if the simulation uh, should fail or is starting to fail. It seems like the dynamic model outperforms the static model only when the number of steps used in the prediction is greater than 10, but the static model comes for free without the DFT simulations. So when is the dynamic model more useful than just using the static model? 
Also, I would imagine most of the large relaxation steps happen in the first few steps of the simulation, and the rest would be more of fine tuning. Could that be why the dynamic model requires a large number of steps? The dynamic models on set aside、uh, test data aren't really where we imagine we'd, we'd use it most. We imagine we'd use it when we had good evidence, say based on the LSE, that the static model. Isn't going to be predictive,、um, and so we envision using them both side by side and switching to the dynamic model when we're in a new space and we know the static model doesn't know enough yet. The geometry optimizations are still pretty significant in later steps.、Uh, I don't think we quantitatively looked at how much further rearrangement there is, but as I mentioned in the beginning, we're starting pretty close to the optimized structure, what we think the optimized structure should be. And so the total amount of rearrangement we're seeing over these、uh, around 300 steps is probably not significant,、um, or it's not m- significantly more significant in the first 40 steps. I think what we see is that there is a transition from electronic descriptors being really important and predicting what's going on before the geometry starts to move, and then once the geometry starts to move, then those descriptors take over. But we were able to get、uh, accuracy close、um, to the static model from only the electronic-based descriptors, for example. Following up on the last question, what applications do you see for the dynamic model that complements the static model? I think there are a few longer-term goals that we have、uh, that would benefit from the dynamic model. I think one of the obvious initial things is that if we put this online, every time、uh, calculation failure is detected or can be reliably predicted with the dynamic model, every time we run a single calculation, even if it's a totally new molecule space that we're not. Used to as long as our criteria for failure are correct, we can always save computation time.、Um, a second question that I think we need to look at, but we don't have the right answer to yet, is:、um, Can we use detected information during the the geometry optimization from the dynamic model to actually adjust parameters of the optimization on the fly? So to now use this like they would use.、Um, You know, dynamic predictive control for for getting us back on the right track. the The best way to do this in a sophisticated way is not something we've figured out、um, yet. And then、um, again, this is really for times when we increasingly move into a space where we know the static model isn't going to generalize well. But there are also interesting things that we'd like to do with the static model that we haven't done yet. We do a lot of. Uh, either large-scale screening of possible compounds or、um, exploration with either evolutionary algorithms or、uh, probabilistic optimization. It would be nice to include in our fitness function、uh, something like the static model to say which of these compound spaces are most promising, not just for a property, but also the likelihood that the DFT calculation will succeed. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Materials and Megabytes podcast. We look forward to having you join us again next time.